Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, fellow time travelers. Great to have you with me as we travel through space and time. Before we get started on today's episode, as usual, I need and want to say a big thank you to all the people who make this podcast series possible by signing up to my patreon.com site. It's that financial input that makes everything else possible, makes the love letters free, as they always have been and always will be. So thank you if you are a member. If you're not, if you haven't signed up so far and you'd like to, uh, go to patreon.com, look for me by name and part with a bit of cash, sign up and become a member and that gives you access to a community really, a family of like-minded people and there are question and answer sessions and competitions and vodcasts and podcasts and and all of the rest of it but my Patreon community, it's a great bunch, it's a great family uh, and you'll be among it. So, that's enough of the advert, now it's time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. The equine engine that helps power the rest of the world is returning to the Americas. Before becoming extinct thousands of years ago, horses roamed those continents. Now they're back, thanks to Christopher Columbus. If the indigenous peoples saw trouble ahead from the two-legged incomers, they were quick to recognise the positive potential of those on four. Endeavouring to understand history, in hopes of illuminating the future. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. Last week we travelled with you to Constantinople as the world's map was being redrawn in blood and misery. Where are we this week? We're shifting our gaze right across the globe. It's 1493 and we're travelling to the Americas as horses are being reintroduced. This would prove to be a defining moment in the continent's development and over the next few centuries, horses would come to shape and define both North and South America. It's a story that affects every part of North and South America and it kicks off, well, with the arrival of the the Spanish and the Portuguese and, and the rest of the Europeans. They arrive at the end of the 15th century, 1492 and all that. And then the story that we're going to talk about today unfolds in the 16th century. It's the return of the horse, (laughs) believe it or not. With the possible exception, I suppose, maybe of somewhere like Mongolia, I don't think there's anywhere on the planet more associated, really, in the mind's eye with men on horseback than the Americas. Cowboys and Indians, 
as it were, the movies of the 40s and 50s and 60s, it's all about men on horseback alternately firing rifles or shooting bows and arrows at, <laughs> at one another. But what's fascinating and what most people overlook is that the native indigenous horse was hunted to extinction in the Americas not long after human beings found their way into that part of the world 25,000 years ago, there or thereabouts. They came across the Bering Strait one way or another, either dry shod or if it was partially flooded, they came across in little boats. But in any event, you know, humans came in about that time. Archaeologists and paleontologists can tell it from the archaeological and and fossil remains. And they know that there were horses. Once upon a time, there, there were naturally occurring indigenous horses in the Americas, north and south, but they were, they were hunted out, along with much else. The megafauna, all the big animals were just hunted to extinction. In sort of geological terms, it, it wouldn't appear that that extinction event took very long. So it wasn't until Europeans found their way to the Americas in the 15th and 16th centuries that they started bringing horses with them. We used to all learn at primary school in 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue. What's less well remembered is that he went, he went, he went back to Spain and then returned. He made a return trip in 1493 and he came back to the Caribbean island of Hispaniola and amongst other things he brought he brought some horses. Obviously by the limitations of the, sh- the vessels that he had available to him. He didn't bring many, but he brought he brought some horses. Columbus, Christopher Columbus, was an Italian. Well, he was from the Republic of Genoa, actually. And his patrons, though, for his transatlantic voyages were the it was the monarchy in Spain. So it was, it was really a sp- it was a Spanish expedition, but he was an Italian in in charge of it. As we all know, he was he was all about demonstrating that you could get to the east by travelling into the west, which was a sort of a topsy-turvy idea. It's hard to gauge, actually. You know, there's a lot of stuff about, you know, until Columbus did this, that and the other, everybody thought the world was flat and that ships would fall off the end of the world and, and all of that kind of stuff. But there was a general understanding from the time of the most ancient that the planet's a ball. So that, that was known. But in any event, it was still a big deal when Columbus took his three ships across the Atlantic that first time in 1492. But it was all about making money. It was all about getting rich. He, he just knew that Asia was super rich in terms of resources, gold and spices and everything else that a, a human being could be hungry for. But he, he was persuaded that rather than having to go into the sailing east to get to the east, you could go west. And he hit, he, he hit the American continent. To the, to the end of his days, he was convinced that what he had found was a western route to Asia, hence West Indies. He thought he was in, a, in the west of India. And it, it was others who you know, tidied the issue up and made plain that what was actually there was a whole different pair of continents that you know had hitherto been forgotten about by the European world. So, anyway, by 1493, horses are back. And then the conquistadors came in as well. Hernan Cortes was the first of them. He brought horses to the mainland of the Americas rather than the island of Hispaniola and then by the middle years of the 16th century there were horses in Argentina in Brazil, in Florida in Mexico, in Panama and in Peru the flood of Europeans kept on coming, Brits and French and others came to colonise and they brought more horses so that in short order there were horses in North America as well as in Central and South America which was where the Spanish and and the conquistadors had taken their horses 
transporting horses all that way was a big deal, wasn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a huge deal. You know, like I say, cowboys and Indians for my age, Saturday morning television, Saturday afternoon movies. It was all about that. You know, obviously we've been, we've been told to say Indigenous Americans or Native Americans or whatever since, but moving their cattle around, they did it with horses. And the Native Americans evolved a lifestyle of the horse. It's iconic. It's the first true icon of the American West is the Native American on horseback. You know, we can all easily, readily conjure that image into our head, but, but it was not possible until horses were returned to that part of the world. There's a brilliant cartoon. I was a big fan of still am fan of the Gary Larson work. I don't know if you know him. I used to see him in, in newspapers. You know, you'd see Gary Larson cartoons. Don't, don't really seem to see them around so much now. But anyway, there's a, there's a fantastic, classic Gary Larson cartoon. You're looking at a, a Spanish galleon on the horizon and coming ashore, and there's two sort of dopey-looking conquistadors rowing a wee rowing boat and sitting bolt upright between them in the boat is a horse. And then also in the in the frame, there's two other conquistadors on the shore. I think there's two of them. And two horses. And they're standing up on hind legs. Right, the horses. And there's two Indians, classic comic book Indians with feathers in their hair. And the horses are shaking hands with the Native Americans. And one of the horses is, is sort of pointing off into the, towards the, the horizon of the land with a sort of a woo excited expression on its face. And the caption is circa 1500 A.D., Horses are introduced to America. So that's you know, this idea of the handshake. It's a brilliant image um, and it, it makes light fun of something hugely significant, though. One of the early conquistadors, less well known than the likes of Cortez, between 1539 and 1542, Vasquez de Coronado led a, a, a less well-known expedition into Mexico and into the Texas Panhandle in the southwest of North America. And he was looking for a city of gold, aren't they always? He understood it to be called Quivara. He didn't find it, <laughs> probably because it didn't exist. But what he did do was encounter and describe the way of life of the Plains Indians, as they were known at that time. He watched what, how they lived their lives so he made that he made those observations in the 16th century and then in 1896 a european american writer called george parker winship wrote a book partly using uh, vasquez's notes so he describes the way of life of uh, a clan a tribe that he called the querecho and he described how so this is winship's words in tents made of the tanned skins of the cows they travel around near the cows, killing them for food. They travel like the Arabs with their tents and troops of dogs loaded with poles. So they're pulling, you know those travois things, you know, that it's like two, two poles hitched to either side of a dog's back and then the, the, the tail end of it just drags along the ground. But, they, you know, they can put a certain amount of gear, kit on it. So the dogs are being used as beasts of burden. These people eat raw flesh and drink blood. They do not eat human flesh. They are a kind people and not cruel. They are faithful friends. They are able to make themselves very well understood by means of signs. They dry the flesh in the sun, cutting it thin like a leaf. And when dry, they grind it like meal to keep it and make a sort of soup of it to eat. They season it with fat, which they always try to secure where they kill a cow. 
They empty a large gut and fill it with blood and carry this around the neck to drink when they're thirsty. <laughs> it's not a terribly appealing way of life in the way it's been described there. You'd have to say, maybe he was misunderstanding some of what he saw, maybe he wasn't. But that was life for that indigenous population in that part of North America, as he observed it in the, in the middle of the 16th century, right? That's before the horses were available. Now, Vasquez de Coronado had horses. That's how he was travelling, but he didn't have enough horses with him to trade, you know, to, to, to let these people have any horses. But subsequent contact with those peoples brought them the horse. All over, other conquistadors and, and other Europeans all over North and South America and Central America, they, they encountered settled farmers. That's how the indigenous people were living. And mostly they were growing or subsisting on maize. But the advent of the horse changed everything. And of course, once a tribe of, of Native Americans had enough horses that everybody could travel on horseback, the world was their oyster. And they could keep up with the, the, the cows that he's writing about there are obviously the buffalo. And they could now keep up with a herd much more readily than, you know, being on foot, pulling your tents and cooking pots and everything else around on the backs of dogs. Once they had horses, it, it revolutionised their way of life. And what evolved was a horse culture that we're so familiar with. But the, the thing is, what's really moving is that that horse culture with which we are all so familiar was incredibly brief. It came like a flower. And it lasted as briefly as any blossom. It, it flourished for those Plains Indians. The Sioux, the Apache and all the rest of it. The Quarecho, in fact, that, that, that were being written about there in the 16th century were probably the same people as became the Apache of legend. But that flowering was incredibly brief. It really came to its apogee in the 18th century and the 19th century. And then during the 20th century, it was completely crushed. That wild, free, roaming way of life for the Plains Indians that was made possible by the advent of those Spanish horses. You know, it came and went in the blink of an eye. And going back to that Gary Larson cartoon, it summed up something very neatly that the indigenous people might have quickly realised that the two-legged arrivals posed a threat. But at the same time, they realised the absolute potential of four legs. You know, so there was a, there was a tragic paradox there that these arrivals were bringing something that they knew, could see, was going to be incredibly useful. But at the same time, it was arriving with something incredibly dangerous. I suppose the moral of the story is, beware not of Greeks bearing gifts, just beware of Europeans bearing gifts. It's a great what-if question, isn't it? What if the ancient Americans hadn't hunted the horse to extinction? Would the horse have powered a different culture there? A powerful one, like the one it helped power in the West, in Europe? Well, when, you know, 20 and 30,000 years ago, when, the, when a lot of this is supposition, it's, you know, the, the, the evidence, the physical evidence is, is fragmentary and incomplete, but it seems simply that, that the horse, along with other species, was simply hunted for food. Hunted, for, you know, for all the usual stuff, for, for the skins, for the hides, for the bone, for the hooves, for whatever, for the teeth, everything, the meat. They, they, were, they were taken as, as food supply. Domestication of the horse, domestication of anything, you know, was a, was a very long, drawn-out process. 
Clearly those Correcho had domesticated the dog. And as is the case in the, in the wider global human story, the wolf was very early linked with the human animal. You know, two hunters that came together for mutual gain. Domestication was a long drawn out process. It, it may have started with the wolf. That, that in all likelihood be the first animal that was domesticated by humans. The domestication of the horse came later. Like, like the domestication of cattle. You know, maybe 10,000 years ago, in somewhere like Iran, Persia, that kind of neck of the woods, the first of the cattle. And I mean, by God, you set yourself the, the task of domesticating wild cattle. Uh, you know, these these things, Oryx and the ancestor of the, of the cattle, <laughs> that's a serious animal. You know, these things are seven and eight feet at the shoulder with massive horns and they're aggressive. But people set out to and did domesticate them, probably calves, but nonetheless, they have to separate the calf from the adult. Uh, and the horse. So imagine setting out to domesticate a horse. I mean, a horse will kill you. A horse is a dangerous creature. And so that, that process took longer. The horse was domesticated on the European or the, or the Asian continent first, it would appear. And it, it didn't happen. That just didn't happen in the Americas. The animal was just was just hunted out rather than converted into a tool, a power supply that could be used. And it, it meant that although there were human beings d doing other things in the Americas, they weren't domesticating the horse because the horse was gone. And so that arrived ready-assembled. <laughs> it was an, an oven-ready horse <laughs> when it arrived, in as much as the, you know, the job of domesticating them was already there, it's already been done. But um, it's such a poignant story. It's just another, ang another angle from which to look at the, the catastrophe, really, of what happened to the indigenous America when European human beings arrived in the 15th and 16th centuries. You know, they brought disease, they brought different ways of fighting, and they just, one way and another, they just completely overwhelmed every indigenous culture that they met. And while for a brief flowering, there was the horse culture in North America, so iconic, the first true American icon, four legs good, two legs bad. As humans, we often think that we are the source of everything, but you can see we needed other animals to work with us. Uh, yeah, to, to go forward. Yeah, that there's that process of, also of domestication. It it ran out of all the animals that could be domesticated were domesticated a long time ago. Domestication of dogs, who knows? Maybe it's maybe it's thirty thousand years ago that you know you start finding uh, dog bones. It, in human contexts, you know, you're 25 and 30,000 years ago, su suggesting that they've got some sort of symbiotic relationship by that point. You know, the dogs and, and humans are, are mixing their, their lifestyles for mutual gain. And then the cattle are domesticated. You know, some bird species are domesticated. Chickens, dogs, some birds, horse, cattle. The Indian elephant, that, that's domesticated. The African elephant's never domesticated. That never happens. It can't be done. And only certain species of horse were domesticated. You've got, you've got zebra, for example, in Africa. They're not domesticated. The human being, uh, inventive and determined as it was, it had a go. <laughs> Let's imagine some, some, some individuals tried to domesticate the African elephant <laughs> and then ended up very, very flat on the African savannah as a consequence of that not working terribly well. But that process of domestication, it was completed. We haven't domesticated anything for a very, very long time 
everything that could be domesticated was domesticated thousands of years ago. And then, that's it. <laughs> Striding up to the castle church, an unlikely revolutionary nails a document to a door. Copies go viral and its author becomes the groundbreaking influencer of the day. Emboldened, he circulates ever more challenging ideas. Insults start to fly. Pope Leo calls him a drunken German. And he replies that the Pope is no better than any other stinking sinner. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening, and write a review maybe to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc., the music's composed by Milo McKinnon. The social media and YouTube producer is Oscar, CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. And the post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. <laughs> <laughs>